are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Today we are going to talk about what do you do with opiate use disorder in a pandemic. I think this is probably one of the most important things. We've got to be able to keep treating patients and figure out how we're going to adapt. One of the first things allowed us to keep seeing patients and kind of overcome this was the Ryan Hay Act. Okay, what what is this? So this was back in 2008. This required an in-person examination to establish the doctor-patient relationship. This currently suspended during this COVID-19 crisis. And now this has allowed us to have that telemedicine visit and to initiate treatment. So that's what's kind of prevented the, you know, your previous ability to do televisits with opiate use disorder. So many of us have found that that's been a life-saving to be able to continue treating our patients, you know, and there's some great resources out there. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, of how to do a good telemedicine visit with patients. Also, this is a good time to just talk with your patients, make sure that they're up to date on their naloxone overdose kits, you know, opiate overdose deaths are on the rise, and more resources are coming available that are really helping with this. On SAMHSA's website, there's TAP34. This originally came out for disasters for treatment centers, and then they've added some additional things for COVID. And then SAMHSA also has some things for just COVID on their website. So that's a great resource. Also, PCSS, Provider Clinical Support System, has some webinars. Those are two great resources. We will go ahead and put some links on our website. And there's also just a hotline. So if you have patients with just acute acute distress, needing mental health support, there is a mental health support line that is toll-free that they can access. And that also gives them some additional resources. So all of these things are available. This is something that was new to my clinic. We really, before this pandemic, had not utilized telemedicine and we had to quickly, within a week, had to adapt televisits. So, you know, as probably many of you out there. And Paula, how many televisits are you doing in your clinic? We're actually doing televisits quite frequently now uh, because we are um, limiting people coming into the clinic. And also we are evaluating people who are coming directly from jail or prison or from the uh, various shelters in our community into residential treatment. And they are high risk for having COVID. And so they're in a quarantine unit or an orientation unit. And so we just are tele um, televisiting them directly and assessing their substance use history, their medical history, and their eligibility for medications to treat opioid use disorder without bringing them into treatment. So that's actually been very good because one, it, it kind of reduces the chance of them bringing, um, you know, 
any possible viral load into our clinic space. And two, it reduces one more barrier for them to have to go through in order to get started on medication. They don't have to come to a clinic. They can just go directly into treatment. This is, I I mean, that's the key, right? Is we avoid disruptions in treatment. And then, yeah, like you said, reducing a barrier. And of course, you know, we have some areas you can, you know, in my clinic, the same thing, we kind of have a hybrid model. We have, we're kind of probably, I'd say about 50, 50. And we, you have to follow your state specific guidelines. And, and sometimes it varies from state to county. So follow those guidelines. We use phone pre-screening. And I think that's talking to a lot of people. That's probably what most clinics and healthcare systems are doing. We, and we have really utilized what we call a virtual waiting room where patients can wait in their vehicle and until an exam re- and this, and and this can work depending on, you know, where we're a standalone building. This can be a little more challenging in multi-specialty scenarios, but that still can be an option where that really prevents that cross traffic, right? So you only have one person entering the building at a time. And so you don't have, there's no waiting room any longer and patients check in online and with the phone pre-screening, that's where we can do for an in-person visit who would be appropriate for a televisit. And then we have started really use, utilizing oral swab drug testing and completed up mobile testing sites, similar to how you're seeing with the on there. So those things and utilizing those kind of things to be able to keep up kind of on there. So I found that to be, you know, it's requiring some adaptations, but has been able to kind of keep us as kind of normal operations, continued patient care with really not, not a huge difference in, and in, 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 in some in improved patient satisfaction. Right. That. I don't know what other differences have you. Well, done? I think, I mean, the biggest difference that I can think of is you just don't have, you know, your, your, your that face-to-face contact with the patient uh, to, yeah. you know, there's just that little bit more information you can gather sometimes. Although um, I did attend, uh, I think you did too, Darlene, attend the session that C- yeah. on, from CSAM on telemedicine this year. There was a really great talk given by yeah. a doc. I can't remember his name. I should so that we could reference him. But it was really excellent and, and very uh, experienced physician who's been providing telemedicine for addiction treatment for some time. And he was just saying, you really can get most of the information you need in terms of the physical exam. And I've been using some of these techniques, like having the patient hold their camera up to their pupils so you can see very closely, let them show you tremor or goose flesh is difficult to see, but maybe help them help you examine their skin for any soft tissue infections. Um, I'd say the thing I miss the most probably is just um, getting a urine drug screen just to, you know, have that further objective data point. Um, And then vital signs, although I'm lucky enough to have staff on hand where most of the clients I'm seeing for telemedicine can provide me with urine drug screen and vital sign capture. I think some providers around the country do not have this luxury. They're seeing patients in their home. No, and that certainly be a difficulty. But there are some, there are some where I have, you know, different, different suggestions that I've heard for that. And and we'll kind of touch, 
touch on that a little bit more when we talk about compliance monitoring. You know, I've had different things like, what do you do if you're still doing office visits? How do you keep yourself and your staff safe and patients? And so I think that's important. I will just kind of talk about that a little bit. You have to, you know, what we've kind of talked about a little bit was having daily what we call staff attestation. So staff come in, we're doing, you know, and this has been a little bit, most places have gone away from that just because of the data showing that's not as, you know, helpful because many patients, you know, with who've tested COVID positive never had a fever, but, you know, doing temperature checks, but we still have staff coming in and doing temperature checks on, you know, when they report for work each day. And then, you know, they just have an attestation that they fill out each day as they come in. And then we've also had offices where they have a set, what we call an A day and a B day staff. And so that way, if you have a close contact exposure, you're not down a whole, your whole office is not closed. Does that make sense? So that can really help to try to mitigate some of those risks there and to be able to keep you operational. So those are just some tips that can maybe help where you still have kind of that hybrid model going is to just kind of reduce some of those things. And then compliance monitoring, which we've touched on a little bit. Yeah. What do you do if you're primarily, you know, doing virtual visits and how do you keep, how do you do compliance? And it is like probably the urine drug screen is probably going to be the most difficult, but one thing we've we have we've really started doing this and have found this very helpful. We have done virtual observed dosing, and and I have seen you know and heard from many clinics that this has been helpful. Virtual medication counts. That's probably what we have done the most of, and then certainly reduce the amount of medications provided in unstable patients. So if you have obviously a new patient that you're starting, I. I wouldn't, I'm not prescribing them a month of medication. I'm prescribing them a week or less. And if you have somebody who is struggling, you know, we can keep them weekly and you can do, there's nothing that says you can't be doing weekly televisits with them until they stabilize. Collaborative information from family members, just being aware that this is requires patient consent, but that kind of helps re, you know, reinforcing what's their support system is family members, you know, saying they're, they're improving, they're stabilized. No, they're not, you know, and then frequent, obviously using prescription monitoring database checks, you know, things like that. And then curbside, you know, drug screening, doing the oral fluid swabs. Obviously those have some limitations as I found, you know, usually your panels are not as robust. I don't get quite as many and your window period on some of the on some of the drugs that are going to be detected. So it's not my preferred route. And sometimes my cost is the cost is not, is, you know, not my preferred as well, but both of those can be at least some option that you have. And then I've, I've seen the same thing, you know, I just want to touch on for methadone clinics. I've, you know, I've had some feedback, you know, for some medical directors over some methadone clinics as well. They've had to make a lot of adjustments. And so 
I they they've done the same thing, curbside yeah. dosing, same thing, kind of doing these virtual waiting rooms and just bringing one patient in at a time, and 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 isolating patients, so bringing them in. So you just they've really had to find some ways to you know still bringing patients in just because of their model of business, but really just trying to bring them in one at a time, avoiding having patients lining up and just trying to avoid that cross traffic. But I think a lot of them, what I've heard is they've really done well, but when they have that ability to just be able to find that possibility, just, you know, like I said, if you have any patients where you're doing that phone screening, I think it's really important. And then just being able to isolate patients if they have any symptoms but we've got the key is to, to try to avoid those disruptions in treatment but if those patients who are doing really well and then accelerating them and on some of their take-home dosing and that's and a lot of them have done well and then just continuing some of those televisits on there and any other thoughts on that no no i think that's i, I agree with you completely on that and then you know couple of just, you know, kind of parting thoughts on this, you know, in emergency buprenorphine, I've had a couple of questions on this. So it's a little bit confusing. So you have according to the, you know, with the buprenorphine and with buprenorphine, it's a little bit different according to the Narcotic Addiction Treatment Act. So this is the original one, it says all practitioners who use a narcotic drugs for treating opiate addiction must obtain a separate waiver under 21 U.S. Section 823 or a data 2000 waiver. So, however, according to the DA exception, a registrant requirement known as the three-day rule allows a practitioner who's not separately registered as a narcotic treatment program as a certified waiver may provide buprenorphine under the following conditions. So they may administer one day's medication may be administered or given to a patient at one time. This treatment may be carried out for more, for no more than 72 hours. And this 72 hour cannot be renewed or extended. So what that means is this is like in, in these extreme circumstances, you can have a non-data waiver prescriber can treat this and you have this is in patients and we have emergencies. They don't have access to care. They can administer the medication for up to three days. Right. You know, and then so that is something just keeping in mind. Again, we're trying to provide gaps in care and improving access. And then Related to that, this is a little bit different. This is what we really want to just get out there. And this is referencing Denorfi's study, and this has been replicated about having more data wavered. Now, these are wavered emergency room physicians. If they can then start patients on buprenorphine and then get them referred to continue care, but the more wavered physicians that we have out there, then we are able to help them access care. And I think that helps where you have sometimes these emergencies like this and gaps in care 
this can kind this can help. So I think those are things just to remember. I think that's a good study. And like I said, we'll try to put a link to that on our website. But I love that data. And it really shows that some of these patients often are ending up in our emergency rooms. And, it, and it's so difficult, but this is a great opportunity to capture them. And then we can get them resources and get them care. And we're just seeing these rising right now. We're just seeing so many our opioid use disorders are increasing. This is a good opportunity to absolutely, them. yeah. That's really it was really important um, work that Gail D'Onofrio did. I think it it kind of opened the door for a lot of other centers um, beyond Yale to start this same system yes. of just starting people on buprenorphine, um, kind of where they are. And for her, it was in the emergency department, but I think other models have adopted that, whether it's inpatient, you know, if people are admitted for a hospital stay, um, even, you know, primary care settings that were not originally set up to do this or maybe considering starting people quicker than they were in the past. And then lots of different emergency settings, including um, in the field. So I think there's some talk of starting buprenorphine um, with EMS um, teams with an overseeing provider. So just knowing that, that, that people die waiting getting into treatment and uh, now more than ever because we have these barriers really to access medical care, whether it's real or perceived. Yeah. So just starting people yeah. on buprenorphine, knowing that we can reduce the rate of overdose by doing so and hopefully um, engage more people in treatment and improve retention by just offering them the medication that they need has has been pretty pretty uh, important and i think you know she's um her big push is not only like you said i'm just kind of reiterating what you said not only starting patients on buprenorphine with the low barrier um to access but also encouraging providers of all specialties to get their buprenorphine waiver because you just don't want that to be the reason no. why someone doesn't get the treatment that they need i don't think a lot of people know about the three-day rule either do you yeah i don't because so many patients will come in and withdraw in the in the emergency room and 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 they really i, I mean i've seen them prescribed <laughs> so many different things, but not buprenorphine. And so uh, that's, that's why I wanted to bring that up is like, this is, you can prescribe that you can, so you can give them that and you can give them buprenorphine if you, this is if they're admitted in the hospital as well. So whether you don't have your data waiver and you admit this patient, I would hope that you would have somebody data wavered on staff, but if you don't, you can, if you have somebody who's already on buprenorphine or somebody who's in opioid withdrawal that you're treating, you can treat them. That is appropriate and that is allowed on there. Right. So you, you and, and this, and you're not, and it is appropriate. So, I mean, I think that's why it's important because we're seeing more and, and more and more situations that this is coming up, but particularly in disaster situations, not just with the COVID you know, pandemic, but I think it's just important to bring that up right now. Cause it's just, again, we're just seeing more of this gaps in care because sometimes it's you know, some clinics initially, I know back in March and April, sometimes some clinics were just shut down and these patients were just like, what do I do? <laughs> and so unfortunately I, I can't even imagine these overwhelmed emergency rooms were just being, you know, 
you know, having these patients showing up, but, you know, this is a resource, but these are just looking ahead. This is really what our goal would be, I think, treat the patients. But just a parting thought that I have is, you know, again, just thinking what we want. We want to avoid disruptions in treatment. That is paramount. But really review coping skills with your patients. See where they're at. I mean, this is these patients sometimes struggle a lot already with mental health issues. And understand that you may sometimes be, you know, I just was reminded of this with a patient because, you know, we... We, we have been able to be able to do a hybrid model where we have been doing some of the inpatient and then televisits. And I had a patient where because of some of her chronic medical conditions, we had offered her a televisit, but it was really, she, she declined that and wanted to come in and, and there wasn't, and it was appropriate. She didn't have any exposures or anything like that, why she couldn't come in. And her reason for coming in was, is just, the amount of emotional distress and things that she was under. And sometimes you as her physician can be very grounding to them. And she just needed to come in and just talk to someone, you know? And so sometimes it just was a reminder to me that you may be that support system to your patients. And so you just need, you know, we need to remember that. Are we checking in on them to make sure that, you know, how's their mental health doing? A lot of people during these times like this are under a lot of distress. And so it's not just a matter of are they staying sober, but how are they coping mentally and emotionally? Those yes, are just important things. I love things. that. That's really, that's so true. That is really true. We have a, a bigger role, you know, for a lot of our patients and they look to us for their as support. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Sign off. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, your advice to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.